The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to the Big Technology Podcast Friday edition, where we break down the week's news in our typical cool-headed and nuanced manner. Joining us, as always, is Ron John Roy. We have so much to talk about. We're going to spend the next little bit talking about the latest on Silicon Valley Bank. But not only that, what's going to, what's going to happen with startups that are now going to have to re-rate their valuations as maybe the entire tech ecosystem gets repriced? We're also going to bring you the latest on GPT-4, what it means, what you should be excited about, what's all hype. And then, of course, we're going to cover the ban of TikTok or the potential ban of TikTok. I shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. And the latest at Meta. Ron John, welcome to the show. Hello. Great to see you. We had a pretty good time at South by, I would say. Yep. Back in cold New York. Uh, missing Austin right now. Yeah, I, me too. And for those listening, Ranjan was scoping out the room that we were scheduled to talk in and came back with reports of like a dozen people, <laughs> 10 people. And then we showed up and thankfully it was a packed house. And uh, to anyone that came out, we had big technology listeners there. So to anyone who came out there uh, with us, thank you very much. And I would say it was a pretty exciting session for us. It was so, a good time. It was a good time. Then the news just kept on spilling over and spilling over. And Ranjan, you have a new piece about the continued fallout of Silicon Valley Bank. So we should definitely talk about that. And by the way, we're doing this again on LinkedIn. So if you're watching on the live stream and you have questions, we're happy to take them. For those on the feed, we do these Friday shows. They're news shows uh, that cover the week's news on Fridays and the main flagship interviews on Wednesday. We take your questions. We're typically going to do these on, on Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern time. Today, we're a little bit early. Ranjan, I think, has to go uh, go to Europe. Or, uh, I'm going to make that up at least. So, but Ranjan, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's going on with the continued fallout of Silicon Valley Bank. You had a piece in Margins that was very interesting talking about basically busting a lot of the narratives, I think, that we had around this or questioning some of the narratives. Yeah, well, the biggest point that I've been, I was trying to make was as we were in Austin last weekend and, you know, the world was collapsing and VCs, some of the famous ones were crying on Twitter loudly. Um, one, one point that everyone kept making is let's wipe out, you know, the, the shareholders, let's wipe out management, fire them all. But we have to save the depositors. The depositors are mom and pop stores in Ohio or whatever else. And I take uh, take issue with that because what I was trying to point out is, so Silicon Valley Bank, and the, this is becoming more known, the New York Times even had a piece today about all the benefits you would get as a depositor and the kind of interconnected nature of the way all of this worked. It, it's amazing. It's Silicon Valley Bank would take deposits from venture capitalists and their startups. The venture capitalists would not force, but highly recommend their startups to bank there. Then Silicon Valley Bank would turn around. They would invest in those same VC funds. They would invest sometimes in the startups who are depositing with them. And 
they would give loans of all sorts. They would give personal loans. They would give mortgages to founders who couldn't get them anywhere else. They would give highly preferential rates on those mortgages. They, uh, the whole field of venture debt, which is something that exploded Silicon Valley Bank, it was the it was a very large part of their overall loan portfolio. And venture debt is a really interesting part of where we are in the cycle because it allows startups to not have to go out and raise more equity with the down round, but instead take some kind of debt or bridge loan in order to maintain a high inflated valuation. So venture debt was a huge part of keeping everything afloat. And then even something that's pretty innocuous, but capital call lines of credit, when a VC makes an investment, instead of having to actually have the cash from the investor directly, they could draw down a line of credit from SVB, make the investment, and then over weeks or months, get that money in from the investor. So the whole world of super rapid fire investing that Tiger Global kind of perfected, they were a huge part of that cog. Or, you know, like, so you take all these different elements into account, and they were such a central part of the COVID ZERP tech boom. I said that, you know, the way Robinhood was for meme stocks, they were the analogous party for the entire boom. But don't you think that the boom would have found its way elsewhere? Like the zero interest rates were a fact on the ground, right? This was just the bank that facilitated it. And to push back on your point a little bit, I mean, shouldn't a bank trying to win over a set of customers do what it can to ensure those customers bank with it? Yeah, no, no, I made the point. It's a great business as a bank. Like it's probably the best uh, best review you could ever give for a bank is that they enabled wealth creation, you know, at an unimaginable scale for a huge concentration of its depositors. But that's also why depositors are not innocent in this. The depositors, I mean, at a few levels, one, they received incredible levels of wealth creation over the last few years or the last decade, thanks to all of these different products from SVB. But even more important, it was those deposits that killed SVB. It was the massive increase in deposits over the last two years. They over tri they tripled their deposits, whereas the rest of the banking industry only grew the deposits by 37%. So it was the very deposits that forced them to move down the risk curve and buy longer dated treasuries. And then it was those same depositors that sparked the bank run to pull out all the money and actually cause the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. So again, depositors played an incredibly important role. So the idea that simply, you know, wiping out the fat cat shareholders and firing mm -hmm. the management actually, you know, prevents any kind of moral hazard in this, I think is wrong. Okay, but you're singing a very different tune than last week, where you said one of the fundamental responsibilities of a bank is the risk management stuff. So yes, the depositors put a lot of money in this bank, no doubt about it. However, you still have Silicon Valley Bank failing in its one obligation. So yes, I definitely understand that, okay, the depositors put the money in there, and that was part of the thing that fueled the problem. And you have this you know, great line saying that like the same depositors who got disproportionately rich thanks to Silicon Valley Bank and whose wealth was too much for Silicon Valley Bank to handle, ended up bringing down the bank. So harming the bank that enabled what they were doing. I think you've highlighted it here before. But again, like the it's the bank, right? Didn't we say that it was the bank's issue? 
Oh, my, my view on this has completely changed over the last wow. week since okay. we recorded last Friday. Okay. And, you know, sometimes views can change, and that's a good thing. I think it was – I had heard, like, murmurs about these preferential mortgages from friends in the startup community, but I didn't quite realize the extent of just how integral Silicon Valley Bank was in enabling all of this. And I think that's where, again, you know, you saw all the – kind of uh, hyperbolic tweeting and stuff. But at first, you're still thinking, okay, well, you know, are people going to make payroll, whatever else? But again, so much wealth was created. And I think the other point, by Sunday, the more I'd read, the more I'd spoken with friends from the banking community, it was very clear. The FDIC had signaled it themselves, you know, and simple math that Silicon Valley Bank, majority of their, uh, you know, assets were in very liquid things like U.S. Treasuries and, high, uh, you know, like liquid mortgage-backed securities. All that could be sold off in a matter of hours, and everyone would have gotten back 50, 60 percent of their money by Monday, at worst. And then over time, maybe you take a five to 10 percent haircut. There's been a lot, even banks are issuing analysis, a lot of, again, like very reasonable analyses why at worst, you take a five to ten percent haircut. So, why was there such an outcry, and why were we threatened with the you know like collapse of the entire banking system when everyone was gonna make payroll? Everyone, I know it, it, the idea that they wouldn't was spurred on by again these same depositor investors. There is a great clip in your post of, of Jason Calacanis, who was one of the biggest alarm sounders in this entire moment talking about how SVB put sent like eight people to his house to help do a mortgage. And, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting to talk about this close relationship between these people who are getting something at SVP that they, they weren't going to get in any other bank and now cry to save it. And the reason why we're talking about this, right, we're not trying to cast blame. What we're doing is saying we're, we're analyzing this because we're asking if the bailout or the rescue, depending on the term that you like to use of this bank, is a moral hazard where if we rescue the bank in this situation, are there going to be other you know, depositors in the future that will not be careful about their, their deposits? But, you know, Ranjan, I, I, you know, I do have to disagree with you on this. Like, I don't think this is a huge moral hazard because, again, um, you know, this is we can't we cannot ask depositors to check into like the, the balance sheets of every bank that they that they bank with, no matter how many benefits they get, that just seems arduous to put on the business owner. And then, like, uh, you know, okay, so the bank might not have failed necessarily, but we were, you know, once the panic gets going, that's something that can spread across the entire U.S. banking system. And it has become a political issue. Janet Yellen was out in front of the Senate, I think, today, you know, getting grilled about whether she bail out other regional banks, which is an important thing. But the fact that they did bail out this bank means that they're not going to be faced necessarily with the prospect of bailing out the smaller regional banks across the country. Whereas if they didn't, there's a pretty good chance that that's what we would be talking about now is the failure of those regional banks. But is it? Is there a pretty good chance? I, I mean, this is where, yes, yeah, smaller regional banks don't have the same balance sheet, don't have the same risk profiles as Silicon Valley Bank. You know, again, their deposits, the overall banking system grew 37% over the last three years where Silicon Valley Bank tripled. 
they didn't have all of these additional products that they're offering, you know, inflating overall wealth creation around this. It's just, it's, it's a completely different business. And again, if on Monday I was talking to a friend who's, who works as a VC Sunday afternoon about this, and he was like, oh no, if the FDIC really comes out on Monday and says everyone gets 50% of their money back on Monday, can make payroll, this all goes away. Like we didn't even get there. It Everything ended up being complete panic and this is the most biggest systemic problem imaginable before we even had any inkling of what the resolution could be. And I think that the last point is we're not out of the woods and this didn't solve things. I mean, look at First Republic today. I think after getting the $30 billion rescue plan uh, from all the big banks, what are they now? Um, I think it was down, oh yeah, it's down 26% again today. So so the the fear in no way is gone, but all that happened was this very, very concentrated specific group of depositors was bailed out. And I, I will use yeah. that word. Okay, so Twitter was, was definitely not been been helpful for this uh, in terms of the the panic, and I'll say that mo- that much. But one of the interesting things that I've also seen is that I that I agree with in your post is that it's been wild to watch some of the investors say that they're speaking up for small businesses and they're speaking up for the little person. Where like basically you know two tweets away, they're cheering Meta's layoff of twenty thousand people. Now either you're you're it's it's a little bit different. Of course, it's a business decision. You know, versus uh, a bank falling, you know, falling apart and then not being able to pay people. But if there was this much concern for the little person, why is it such a disjointed response to the idea that people could lose their job or not get paid? Yeah, this is the biggest part. This is the tell in this entire uh, saga. When the same investors who have been cheering Mark Zuckerberg's year of efficiency and layoffs of 10,000 people and Elon, you know, like slashing Twitter's workforce for the last few months to turn around and say they care about the everyday person who's got to make payroll and feed their kids or whatever else. I I just don't buy it. And again, it's amazing because some of these people have turned right around and went back to if you saw Mark Mm -hmm. Zuckerberg's memo about announcing another uh, 10,000 people uh, being laid off, they're celebrating it again because as far as they're concerned, everything's okay from their perspective. So, Ron, I'm I'm hearing you and I'm also now I'm starting to think, wait a second, would you have done the the bailout, the rescue, whatever you want to call it? I, I am in the camp that it doesn't really matter what we call it. But are you in the camp that we should not have done this rescue to the depositors? I think the FDIC should have, if they were very ready to return 50 to 60% of everyone's money on Monday, I do, I think that actually would have been a very reasonable course of action. And, and again, we're seeing it. This has not solved the problem. This is not in any way solved with First Republic down. Everyone's still panicking. It didn't solve the problem. It just helped a very, very specific set of people. But think about, okay, so the argument that it did stop the panic is think about how much worse it could be today. But I guess these are all hypotheticals. But talking about how this could also spread to a larger, uh, the larger banking system, there was this chart actually that uh, David Sachs tweeted out. I think Balaji also tweeted out and is worth talking about how right now we're in this moment where what happened to SVB is it failed because it had all these unrealized losses on its balance sheet holding these long duration securities and people figured it out. But over the past few years, we have 
hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe trillions of dollars of unrealized losses being held across the entire banking system. And for years, it was not so bad. But once you hit 2022 or so, when these interest rates go up, you start to see this across the banking system. And the argument is that this is a huge systemic failure. And from Sachs, what he says, and put it up on screen here for those on the live stream, the problem in our banking system, the problems in our banking system aren't over. They're just getting started. And at now, at least we have some time to deal with them. So why don't we seize upon this, Ranjan? I mean, what is the long-term threat here in terms of more banks being hit by these long-duration uh, securities issues the same way SVB was? Yeah, so again, I think that statement, the problems in our banking system aren't over, they're just getting started to make that after being made whole on the Silicon Valley bank deposits is a perfect indication that that was just self-serving. You know, like if all of these problems were truly out there and some being recognized as something that needed to be fixed, the calls would have been for let's regulate the hell out of everyone today. Let's have like an emergency congressional, uh, you know, intervention to actually nationalize banks or whatever it is. Um, and the other thing to remember that graph that's uh, being shared around, the other banks, their unrealized losses aren't greater than their overall equity value the way it was for Silicon Valley Bank. And that's what made them much more vulnerable in this versus a JP Morgan or a Bank of America or whoever else. And I think that's the, it's misleading in that. Is it a problem? Sure. And is it something that, you know, needs to be thought through? Yes. But also the banks, this is, and this goes back to the overall regulatory issue where banks over $250 billion in deposits had been already going through interest rate risk stress tests, whereas Silicon Valley Bank had lobbied and been removed from that exempt, uh, had been exempted from that because they weren't over 250 billion. So at least there's some work being done or there has been around larger banks on this. But again, if any bank loses uh, you know, over, what is it, a half of their deposits or a third of their deposits in 24 hours, yes, everyone's gonna be in trouble. Yep. We have a nice little bit of pushback in the comments uh, that I think I'm going to read from Ryan Smith here, talking about our comparison of the celebration of layoffs and the panic about startups not being able to make payroll. And he says, you guys are comparing well-established companies with startups. The well-established players will be fine. This is just part of doing business like layoffs. The venture cap-based companies might not even get out of the gate. I think that's a good point when we talk about Again, uh, a good bit of nuance when we talk about how these companies are are the the react the, the sort of polarly different reactions to Facebook layoffs versus startup layoffs. Yeah, no, I I think that's a great point because again, separating out you know venture back companies, especially late stage ones from the big tech firms, it, it's it is a very important nuance. But I think I guess from my side, I was just making the point that the way they approach the idea that we have to worry about people getting laid off, that was mm -hmm. the inconsistency. Yep. One of the things that I talked about looking at, I mean, we, we had this conversation on the podcast uh, on Wednesday with Omalik and Chris Tolis about why this became politically tricky for people. Uh, and even President Biden hesitated before going through with it. This was why we waited all weekend to figure out what was going on. My, my point to them and I think I could have made it more forcefully, and I wrote about it in Big Technology this week, was that there has been this over-financialization of the tech industry where tech can do a lot of good. 
and we love using the products again like we're talking on linkedin here through Streamyard, and we're going to put it out on spotify and apple and overcast like it's a miracle of technology that even allows us to have this conversation at scale where the tech industry sort of lost um the public in or a chunk of the public is this over financialization that it did where instead of just being able to press a button and get a delivery and tip a DoorDash driver, it actually included your tip for DoorDash actually included your tip for <laughs> as part of its minimum payment to, to drivers until someone pointed it out in the press and it was no longer tenable for them. And even then they try to fight it saying that this is what drivers or what dashers prefer. And I do wonder if, if this is a moment where the tech industry says, okay, maybe some of this over financialization is is a little bit counterproductive because there is a cost to it on, on the political side. And that's what we're starting to see. I'm curious what you think. And I also know you have some feedback about that show. So why don't you hit me with it? <laughs> well, no, I, I think, and if we dig into over financialization, I think that's like the most important point of this is, and you know, listening to the show, Ohm, Ohm was definitely a beneficiary of this system. And so to people who weren't, it sounds very different where you're hearing all these, this special treatment, preferential treatment, you know, it's, it's great for that person. And I think like the, the, in terms of over financialization, if we get into, let's say late stage valuations, and I think this is a really important thing to watch right now is how this all plays out. Think about what I'd said earlier is like, Tiger and other firms were able to invest at speed because they had these capital call lines of credit. And in, a, a founder who can borrow and take out a personal loan or a mortgage against a valuation of their company is going to have a huge incentive to go for that inflated valuation. Like all of these things worked together to create all these massive valuations. And this was one of the biggest pro problems. But for a while, again, it all worked because then the company could IPO, they could mm -hmm. pass it off to the retail investor, and everyone else walks away happy who is in on that entire chain of events. And I think what's going to be really interesting to watch right now is what this does to late stage private valuations. Because the, I mean, whatever money was already slowing down, it's going to become significantly slower. I do think that's a good thing because I think that is probably the most distorted portion of the market. Like you just had a uh, tiger uh, stuff just came out. I think they were down 33%. They marked their private valuation, their private books down. Whereas the comparables in the public market are down 50 to 60%. Similarly with SoftBank, all of these funds have been able to maintain the illusion of a certain valuation or a certain, you know, like worth of their portfolios because of these inflated valuations. So that's at the high level. But then when you go down, it's still crazy to remember that that founder of that company could then use that to borrow against it for their own personal gain. And I think like to see how that part of the market plays out is definitely going to be the most interesting thing to watch over the next few months, aside from a potential global banking crisis. But. Yeah, fingers crossed that doesn't happen. Thank goodness we bailed out these companies because we won't yeah. have that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so let's let's talk about it. Did, did this re is this re-rating or this revaluation of of big tech uh, VC funds or big VC funds and of startup valuations? Is that something that's a direct outcrop of SVB, or is that just something that like now we've had these rate raises and all of a sudden all big funds are going to have to you know, take a look at the valuations of startups, take a look at the valuation of their portfolio, and then adjust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I am so curious. One, SVB invested in a lot of these companies alongside the same VCs that were their depositors. But then when their books are sold off, is there a forced repricing of these assets? Because if mm -hmm. you're the buyer of an essentially bankrupt fund or a distressed fund, you're not going to pay at that high valuation. So I'm very intrigued to see how that plays out. But another thing that uh, it, there was in this Wall Street Journal piece around Tiger Global, it's crazy to remember over the last few years, they would not only value companies at a very high level, then they would go out and raise money off of these. Like they, there's a, they, their PIP 16 fund had raised in 2020 and said it was a, generating a 2020, 22% internal rate of return. And then that's already been marked down to 9%, but they already used that to raise their funds after that. So like mm. that, again, that cycle of ever increasing money, everything was predicated on these high valuations. So, so I do think, again, there will be pressure on this from many, many levels. And I think that's going to be where we see some very interesting shakeouts. And we're already starting to see at least one sort of shakeout, which is Stripe announced a Series I fundraise this week. Series I. I've never heard of Series <laughs> I. I mean, we might just keep going down the entire alphabet. But okay, so you read the high level numbers that their fundraise is more than $6.5 at a $50 billion valuation. And you just say, oh my God, that's a ton of money. And how do they raise that much in this environment? And that valuation is obscene for a private company. But then you look at the valuation that they raised at last, which is $95 billion. And, you know, it's almost now, the company is almost now valued at half of what it was. Is this sort of the sign of now we're starting to see the sanity come into the late stage private market? Is this already beginning? Absolutely not. Because <laughs> I would say the most amazing part of the Stripe fundraise is that a large portion of it went to actually paying the tax bill for employees, restricted stock units that for them to issue new equity, they would have to, it, it has been so long that they would have to pay off this huge tax bill for employees. And the amazing part is, again, these massive funds are actually giving money to allow for that. It was $2.3 billion were to, of the $6.5 billion were to cover withholding tax for employees. Like, it's just to prevent going into the public markets and having to open your books. They know it's so bad that they're unwilling to do that that they're willing to literally just keep this going and going and going into the series I um, rather than just recognizing where the business is and letting the the larger public market say this is what it should be valued at. Oh, what's the alternative? I mean, if they yeah. did say, if they did go to that, I mean, so they're already taking this haircut from a 95 billion valuation to 50 billion. What do you think? That, I mean, the market, if they send it to the market and said, okay, value us at this moment, yeah, no, no, I mean, I think a firm, you a firm's say, okay, down, we're a $10 what, billion 80, company? 85% ad yen's yeah. down. Like, obviously, mm -hmm. that's the thing. Public market comparables are all down significantly more. When we see it was like a 45% haircut for Stripe, it's still not near where the public market comparables are. So, that, so the, okay, then you get into this whole, you know, the argument can be private markets are better because they're longer term focused, whereas public markets, you know, are everyday liquid quarterly earnings all these other things but that all sounded i think good in theory when you had one 
when it's a company just at an earlier stage that's uncertain about its revenue and profitability paths, but then also Series I, <laughs> like this is, this, how long has this gone on? And and this is where, again, going back to SVB, once some of those products and services and relationships are no longer there, I, I can't see how this stuff keeps happening. We're here on Big Technology Podcast Friday edition. Ranjan Roy is with us as always. A few bit of, of housekeeping notes. First of all, um, for those of you who rated the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts um, and let folks know that you're here and listening, those five-star reviews really went a long way. We have two great interviews coming up next week and I'll reveal, or the next couple of weeks, and I'll reveal one of them uh, right now. Kevin Sistrom, founder of Instagram, and now he's the founder of this new new startup, Artifact News, is coming on next Wednesday for a discussion of what goes, uh, basically, you know, what goes on when we're moving to media world where we're all uh, being recommended content by AI. I think you're going to love that discussion. So thanks to those who rated and reviewed. And if you haven't yet, if you can rate us five stars on Spotify and Apple or whichever one of those you listen to, that would really help the podcast. So thank you for that. Also, Ranjan is going to be out on vacation the next two weeks. We're still going to be breaking down the news here. I know that Aaron Griffith of the New York Times will be joining me for one week and we'll see who's going to be here the next week. So we hope that you join us for both of those. On the other side of this break, we're going to talk about the release of GPT-4 and then maybe the potential for a TikTok ban here in the United States. We'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast talking about what we talked about, Silicon Valley Bank. I think we've covered that exhaustively and I'm glad we did. It's a massive story. But now we're going to talk a little bit about the latest NAI. Joined as always by Ron John Roy. You can get margins, and I'm going to get it right this time at readmargins.com. Latest article is up there, so recommend you check it out. Okay, big news on the AI front is that GPT 4 is here. It's a step up from GPT 3.5. The way that OpenAI describes it, they say it's a large multimodal model that accepts image and text inputs and emits text outputs. And that while less capable than humans, in many real-world scenarios, 
It exhibits human-level performance on various professional and academic benchmarks. It basically smokes law students on the bar exam. Uh, it can you know, crush your score probably in any test you took back in the day. And it also does some of this really amazing uh, stuff like take uh, an image that someone might have drawn and can turn it into a basic website, which to me watching that happen was like, again, like so many times recently is watching AI perform magic. Rajan, I'm curious like what you think of the development here. Is this incremental or is this really the step change that a lot of people are talking about? I think it's a step change. And we've been talking about generative AI a lot over the last few weeks. It's something I've done a lot of work in over the last year and a half. And this is big. And I think that multimodal nature, the thing to remember about this, I had primarily been working with text, um, text to text, like input, output. There's a lot that's been done, Dolly, mid-journey around taking text and turning it into image. Um, again, I want a ridiculous photo of an otter using a laptop on an airplane. I think I saw something that mid-journey has been improving over the years as a base case. Um, but now what's going to happen is you can actually take video and image for the input and then turn it into text, You can, which is where you saw the idea that you could take like a napkin sketch, it'll understand it, and then it'll actually turn it into code and then code a website for you. So I, I think this gets really interesting for real world applications. Everything in marketing, this was a big, uh, like making a social caption using GPT-3 actually wasn't that interesting. Because again, it's this stuff is so visually based that it really didn't make sense unless you had to like manually describe the entire photo. Now you can actually take again, video text input, then generate text, video or images. So, so I, I think this is big. And they also said that part of it, I think the New York Times they said this, is that GPT-4 has already been baked into some versions of Bing. And I mean, when you think about how good that chatbot has been, it's like, oh, okay, if that's the thing that I've been talking to, then yeah, this, this does seem like a real development. One of the places we're going to start to see this is in <laughs> kind of hilarious, but in Microsoft Office and a version of it, I suppose, in Google Drive, where you're going to be able to Google, be in Google Excel. Workspace, workspace. Okay, Google Workspace. Yeah. Sorry. You know how Apologies. they name things. Yeah. I know. I'm going to get an angry email from Google PR after this, but that's okay. We can handle that. But uh, the, it look, it's pretty, looks pretty amazing where you can like basically drop in a bunch of numbers and then start, you know, conversing with the Excel spreadsheet, asking about different trends and, and where things are going from that, you know, in your business. What do you, do you think that that's a gimmick or, I mean, it sounds to me like that's going to be pretty useful actually. All right. Two points on this one, God bless Microsoft and Google for being smart <laughs> about this because think about like meta tried to sell us the metaverse by being in like meetings, you know, like with a with no legs and the whole virtual meeting thing versus Google, their demo video is like, okay, you don't have to do slides anymore. You don't have to do spreadsheets anymore. So I think from a pure marketing perspective, both of them knocked it out of the park. I think like make like really hitting pain points for people. They did an incredible job. But the second part is and trying to be balanced and nuanced here. I'm very excited about GPT-4. I was a little, like Google, if you watch, they have this video where it takes an email thread from work, turn, like extracts meaning, summarizes it for you, turns it into a presentation all with like one line or something like that. It's pretty incredible. I don't think we're 
anywhere near that. I what, until I see it in real life, until like I actually use it, I still feel like literally this morning I had to go on Google Drive and I had to look up how to do a date constraint search. And there's like a whole you know, set of parameters. It was a pain in the ass. Like it's the current product is so far from what they have in the demo that it makes me a little worried or suspect that we're getting back into overhyped territory. And it actually reminded me, do you remember the Google duplex demo in 2018? Yes. Where they had Sundar was on stage and they had a, it was like someone was book an AI was booking a haircut appointment with a real person. And theoretically, this was a real phone call that was made and it was understanding the other person and conversing with them. And, and hesitating and going, um, to mimic human speech. Yep, Can yep. I get an appointment at a, <laughs> yeah. even though it didn't have to, it wasn't really thinking. Oh, Google trying to be human. <laughs> um, but, but, but again, this is where I, my frustration with this whole space is everything being promised like there's such incredible things as you said anyone who's used the new bing chatbot even chat uh, chat gpt this stuff is amazing having worked on it in real business applications when you actually are like digging into it it's incredible but over promising on this stuff my worry is again we get into another hype cycle where when the first iteration of someone because satya even in his memo i think he said Sometimes it'll be right, and other times it will be usefully wrong. Yes. That's a technologist speaking, because that's someone who's thinking, okay, I will, you know, like that usefully wrong will then help us train it further and further. To an average user, that first usefully wrong ends it for them. They're no longer interested. If it turns into usefully wrong where your boss gets pissed at you, um, right. that's definitely not usefully wrong. So I think... We're still in that, uh, I mean, uh, not still, it's certainly <laughs> accelerated over the last week or two or a few months where every, we're being promised the world and uh, uh, I don't know if we're there yet. Usefully wrong does seem like some amazing marketing speak, but I can see it. I can see like, I have more faith, and this has sort of been our where we sit on the two sides of things. I have more faith in people to be able to navigate and and see the faults of AI than I think you do, but I think you, know, you do. I think, I think you that do. they could, they they could, it could be usefully wrong. But there's there's another thing that's interesting here. We're like there's all this action, all this interest in what's going to happen, and when AI, generative AI gets into Microsoft Office or Google Workspace or Workplace, you know, don't hold me to this, Google. But Benedict Evans, who's again a friend of the show, and thank you, Benedict, for dropping a link to the show in your newsletter this week. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are some people listening who came through that, so thank you for being here. And he made a great point talking about how, and I'm just going to read his tweet, Microsoft and Google adding generative AI into Office apps is a classic pattern of incumbents making the new thing a feature. But the new thing generally also enables completely new ways to solve a problem. Easier spreadsheets is less important than why is that a spreadsheet? So his point is basically like you're, you're instead of having to, you know, ask questions to Microsoft Excel, you know, and, and I'm just going to extrapolate from what he's saying. Maybe one day you're just going to upload all your data to some AI bot and then have a conversation that way. So why make it a feature on the product versus make it the product? And maybe that's where they're vulnerable. Yeah. Why I love Twitter, Elon Musk aside, <laughs> is because sometimes you get those flashes of brilliance that make yeah. everything make sense. And that I felt that tweet was so perfect because it is, it's 
It's having a co-pilot alongside a spreadsheet assume spreadsheets make sense. And I, mm -hmm. I, I'm actually the first to believe that spreadsheets aren't going to make sense where we're going. And that's a good thing that, you know, like having it embedded into Google Docs and the way like a, writing blog posts in that traditional way or whatever else, like the entire user interface is going to change. And that's a great thing. So, so I, I think and this is exciting that this is what makes this, this moment really, really interesting because Microsoft and Google are trying to integrate it into existing products, which obviously is a huge advantage, but it really opens the door for completely new ways of working. And that that's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm sort of irrationally excited about the fact that like you will just be able to upload data. Like for me, like uploading listen data. Hey, what days are better to post the show? What type of topics do well? You know, all those type of things or even, you know, with the newsletter. Uh, and, and instead of like having to like put it in a Google Sheet and examine, like to be able to converse with the data sounds unbelievable. Yeah, but, but this is one of those that Google Analytics, I think it was like the 3.0, it was like a major update a couple of years ago, was supposed to introduce natural language queries that no longer did you have to do reports. You had to, you know, what was our traffic over this month period and how does it compare? It doesn't work well, and at least for me, and maybe others have figured it out, but uh, it's still just traditional reports and stuff. So, so when this happens, I will be excited, but until then, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. The Biden White House is telling ByteDance, effectively, you either divest your ownership in TikTok or you face a ban. And this has been part of a, a long discussion about TikTok and its place in the United States. There's certainly worries that TikTok could have an influence on the culture of the United States or potentially make the data unsafe, which I think everyone I speak with uh, is, is, is less concerned about that. The real concern is sort of the cultural influence. TikTok has a very interesting ownership structure. Okay, 60% of ByteDance shares are owned by global investors. 20% are owned by employees and 20% are owned by the founders. You know, when you put that all together, does divestment actually, I mean, I know it's a hot buzzword. I know we've been talking about it for like four years at this point. Does, it, does divestment actually do anything? Okay, I, the news this week, I've been making this my call. I think on this show a couple of weeks ago on CNBC, multiple times that TikTok mm -hmm. will be banned in the US this year. Um, we're getting closer to it. I think divestment is impossible. And I think there's a couple of reasons behind that. One, infrastructurally, it is so ingrained and tied to the entire ByteDance infrastructure that to properly divest it, I, I just don't see technically how that works in any easy, rational way. Again, everything is still bi built on ByteDance infrastructure. Even at the, I actually, at South By, I met some people from Douyin, which is the Chinese equivalent of TikTok, mm -hmm. and they're marketing like expansion to China. And their offices are in the TikTok office in LA. Like it's, everything is intertwined. There's been a million articles that have come out around how, you know, how intertwined the company still is with the parent company. So I, I think that's the biggest part. I don't see how it happens just at an infrastructural level. But then the second part, and going back to the late stage valuation question, ByteDance, there was actually two days ago, the Abu Dhabi, one of the large investors, uh, invested at a $220 billion valuation. 
that's down from $330 billion. And that's down from Tiger had invested at a $400 billion plus valuation at the end of 2021. So ByteDance, like plenty of other tech companies, is in a very precarious situation itself financially. And TikTok is a significant chunk of its revenues. So if you are a potential buyer, imagine going into that deal. I, I would feel bad for the investment bankers trying to work mm -hmm. on that and like assuage any potential investors. Like, I mean, not only do you have the threat of American governmental intervention, just as a business, you are going to have to realize a massive haircut on whatever that private valuation has been. And I, I think ByteDance is going to be afraid to do that because it could bring down the entire company's valuation. Who knows what other second order effects there are there. So I think between the technology and the value and the actual like execution around that, I, I just don't see who buys it and how it happens. So you just think that it's just going to get banned outright instead of the sale? Yeah, I, I think on one side you have where divestment is just operationally hard. But then mm -hmm. on the other, and this is what I've been saying at the beginning, from the beginning, I think the data location is scary, but not necessarily, you know, a, a deal killer in the sense that like, yes, that is something that theoretically maybe you can make work. The idea that the Chinese government is following your views of when, who you follow and whatever else, even though there were reports of it being used to track journalists who are covering TikTok. But to me, the bigger issue, and this is the cultural and political issue, our entire pop culture is defined by an app owned by part in part by the Chinese government, or at least mm -hmm. whose management still, for all intents and purposes, has to answer to them. And that's nuts. It's a black box algorithm. And this is the thing for the big from the beginning for me, it's amazing that we've gotten this far is that it's a black box algorithm defining what we talk about and think about as a, I mean, especially for a majority of 20 to 35 year olds, like it's, that's crazy to me. And I don't see how that's tenable for any, any duration. There has been this view that like, if you do ban TikTok as a political party, you're doomed. And I thought that that was, I would sort of ascribe to that as well, that it will be a politically costly thing to do in the United States. Therefore, I didn't see it likely to happen. However, we do have copycats on YouTube and Reels, and they're getting better. And it, it might not be, I'm starting to be open to the possibility that it might not be the hit that I and many others have imagined. If my millennial chat groups are any indication, everyone's sharing reels and even YouTube shorts now I'm starting to see, whereas yeah. that never came through before. Obviously not Gen Z myself, but but I think, yeah, like everyone has a competitor. Short form video has been commoditized. And if your patriotic calling as a 22 year old is you don't use TikTok, you use Snap Spotlight and uh, YouTube Shorts and stuff. I mean, I don't know. Will that there really be a massive backlash to that? I, I, I can't see that happening. Yeah, well, I, I do think it's possible, but uh, we do. Who knows? Okay, so let me just drop this comment in quickly. So Michael Tedasco mentions that GPT-4's word limit is 25,000 words versus 3,000 in GPT-3. And those are big training, big changes in the training and to work with new models. So it's obviously able to handle a lot more text. And we're going to see a lot more interesting use cases come out of this stuff. And that is the perfect segue into our final segment of the day. We always try to end with something a little bit fun. 
And here's a real question of the week is whether generative AI will solve dating. Because I saw this thing, it was a screenshot from Reddit um, asking about a Reddit AI thing, asking whether this is ethical. This person made a dating app bot to get dates and it actually uh, works. And the person said that he created a bot designed to learn his preferences based on his previous matches, allowing it to understand what type of girl and engage in meaningful conversations that are tailored to his interests. And he says in the first month, the bot scheduled 13 dates for me, all of, with, 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 all of which were with people who matched his preferences and had similar interests. And he no longer has to waste time swiping aimlessly <laughs> or struggling to come up with conversation starters. <laughs> Is this the future? Is this the future? (laughs) I'm glad I'm currently married. I'm glad (laughs) I am not in the dating world right now. This is what's going on. But but in a way, um, let's take this back to uh, Benedict Evans' point. Swiping through endlessly, maybe that does go away. Maybe we are finally at a point. And I think like dating apps, it promises for a while that using algorithms will find you the right match. Maybe they will. Maybe they. Maybe they'll actually get us there. Or the uh, the ultimate logical extension of this is, uh, in the end, we'll all fall in love with bots, anyways. So maybe yeah, this, is have, just, this is this is just yeah. going to get us there one step quicker. We have a comment. Yeah, again, what if, if bots, um, you know, date date each other and hit it off? Will they become a couple? And if can your bot may, cheat on you, or may, can maybe your bot, uh, with another bot? Yeah, and maybe those bots end up feeling the true what what real love is, and and we never do. Uh, humans sort of lose that capability. I, I'm so. not gonna I'm not gonna deny it. I have a I have a three and a six year old, and I have I, I was joking about this like a couple of years ago. It is not out of the realm of possibility that like 15, 20 years from now, I will have to be in the conversation that like I love this bot. You don't understand me. I just yeah. love him. I, I, I don't think that's a complete impossibility. Just wait. And I'm not saying this is going to happen to you, but just wait until people have their spouses leave them to start dating bots. <laughs> I, I think there, be... there, there was like one viral story yeah. where someone claimed that they left for a bot. But honestly, if we look at, if we think about kind of like cultural representations of AI, her, yeah. the mm-hmm. movie was the best. Because like it, it was so good for anyone who's wa- who hasn't watched it. Joaquin Phoenix falls in love. It's like the voice of Scarlett Johansson. And she's an AI bot that's in this like always on earpiece of his. Because I remember what was so cool about it was the future didn't like it wasn't flying cars and everything else. It was just kind of like somewhat normal and look like, you know, uh, representative of what today's world looks like. It just had this entire layer over it. And I, I think that might be the most uh, accurate representation of where we're going out of anything versus Terminator or some other crazy thing like that. Well, it is interesting. And I know you're good. This is we should probably start our next conversation about this because the debate is metaverse or generative AI. And now like funding has gone from, gen, you know, uh, metaverse to generative AI. But ultimately, like, I think that's where we're, we're just going to end up in a metaverse filled with gener- generative well, AI. Will, will, will you date a VR avatar or a generative AI bot in an always-on earpiece. That's that's the debate, I think. This is the. It's a matter of personal preference, Ron John. All right, and I all wouldn't right. dare ask what whoever goes on you in your choose. Whoever life, you choose. <laughs> thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for watching on the feed. Very lively feed, as always, uh, here on LinkedIn. So thanks for all of the great questions. Again, we will be back on Wednesday with my interview with uh, Kevin Sistrom. 
wishing Ranjan a great trip next couple of weeks in Europe. I'm sorry, I'm disclosing your location. Well, I'll, so. see, I'll see you I all in say a couple which country, weeks. Though. It's some time off, finally. Yes, excellent. And uh, and again, thanks to all of you for listening. Really appreciate it. Uh, it's been it's been great being able to take you through some of the SVB news and some of the other news going on. And uh, and we won't relent. So uh, that will do it for us here this week. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. 